Chapter Four of Sergeant York and His People by Sam Cowan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Brett Downey. The Molding of a Man. The first year after the marriage of William York and Mary Brooks, they lived at the old Coonrod Pile home, and William York worked as a cropper. Securing the farm that had been given the bride, they modeled into a one-room home the corn crib of Elijah Pyle that stood across the spring branch and up the mountainside. It was a long crib, and they chinked it with clay, and using split logs from the walls of the old shed, a puncheon floor was made. The coming of spring brought the blossoms of flowers the girl-wife had planted. Honeysuckle and roses have bloomed around that cabin each succeeding summer, and it proved the foundation of a home that was to withstand the troubles of poverty in many winters. It was a home so rare and real that it pulled back to the mountains a son who had gone out into the world and won fame and the offers of fortunes for the deeds he had done as a soldier. William York, in his simple philosophy of life, disciplined himself and later his boys to the theory that contentment was to be found in the square deal and honest labor. He was so fair and just in all his relations with his neighbors that the people of the valley called him Judge York, and his honesty was so rugged and impartial that not infrequently he was left as sole arbiter even when his own interests were involved. In talks by the roadside, at the gate of his humble home, seated on the rocks that surround the spring, many a neighborhood dispute has been settled that prejudice could have fanned into a lawsuit. Yet William York never prospered, as prosperity is measured by the accumulation of property, and it has been said of him that he just about succeeded in making a hard living. He was a farmer, blacksmith, hunter, a man of the mountains who found pleasure in his skill with his rifle. But the memories of him that linger in the valley, or those that are revived at the mention of his name, are of him in the role of husband, father, and friend. The Civil War had scattered much of the wealth that old Coonrod Pyle had accumulated, and Elijah Pyle had conserved. The number of heirs brought long division to the realty, and most of those who had benefited by the inheritance were all left land poor. To Nancy Brooks, as her part, came the home the old Long Hunter had built with such thoroughness and care, together with seventy-five acres of land. This she left to her boy, who had been named after his ill-fated father, and he lives there today. To Mrs. York had been given seventy-five acres, part level and part hilly. That was the share of her aunt, Polly Pyle. In the cave above the spring, which was Coonrod Pyle's first home, William York built a blacksmith's shop, where he mended log wagons and did the work in wood and metal the neighborhood required. He farmed and worked in the shop, but in his heart always was the call of the forests that surround him, and it was his one great weakness. A blast from his horn would bring his hounds yelping around him, and often, unexpectedly, he would go on a hunt that at times stretched into weeks of absence. His hounds were the master pack of those hills. On his hunts, when he built his campfire at night, he gathered the dogs around him, and singled out for especial favors those whose achievements had merited distinction during the day. Following a custom that in those days prevailed among owners of hunting hounds, the dog that proved himself the leader of the pack while on a hunt was decorated with a ribbon or some emblem upon the collar. Small game was abundant in the mountains that made the Valley of the Three Forks of the Wolf, but the deer and bear had withdrawn to the less frequented hills. The hunts were for sport, 
and there was no real recompense in the value of the pelts. Alvin was born in the one-room cabin on December 13, 1887, and there were two older children, Henry and Joe. Alvin's early life was different in no way from that of other children of the mountains. He lived in touch with nature, and without ever knowing when or how the information came to him, he could call the birds by their names, and knew the nests and eggs of each of them, knew the trees by their leaves and their bark, and was familiar with the haunts of the rabbit and the squirrel, the land and the water turtle. While still too small for the rough run of the mountains, he has stood red-eyed by the gate of his home, and watched his father and the hounds go off to the hunt. And as he grew, his hair took on that color that trace of him while at play could be lost in the red brush that grew upon the mountainside. There was one part of the routine of the week at Pall Mall that has interested Alvin York from early boyhood. It was the shooting matches, held on Saturday on the mountainside above the spring, just where a swell of the slope made a tableland, and where a space had been cleared for the tests of skill. The clearing was long and slender, such a glade through the trees as the alley of the mountain bowlers which Rip Van Winkle found in the Catskills. Only the shooting range was longer. A hundred and fifty yards were needed for one of the contests. This aisle had been cut through a forest of gray beech and brown oaks. At the points where the targets were to be set, the clearing widened, so that the sunlight, filtering through the leaves and flickering upon the slender carpet of green, could fall full and clear. Each Saturday the mountaineers were there, and William York and Alvin were among the regulars. Often there were fifty or more men, and they came bringing their long rifles, horns of powder, pouches made of skin in which were lead and bullet molds, cups of caps, cotton gun wadding, carrying turkeys, driving beeves and sheep, which were to be the prizes. And when the prizes gave out, some of the men remained and shot for money. Pony purses, they were called. The turkey shoots were over two ranges, some forty yards, and one a hundred and fifty yards. At the latter range, the turkey was tied to a stake, driven in the center of the opening at the further end of the glade. A cord, about two feet in length, was fashioned to the stake and to one leg of the gobbling, moving target. It was ten cents a shot, tossed to the man who offered the prize. Often the bird fell at the first trial, and a hit was any strike above the turkey's knee. But the long-distance turkey shoots were the opening events, and the marksman had his gun to warm up, his eye to test, and his shooting nerve to be brought to calmness. So frequently it would happen that the entrance money ran into a sum that gave a prize value to the turkey, as prices ran for turkeys in those days. There was the element of chance for the man offering the prize that was always alluring. The second turkey shoot was held at the forty-yard range, but the bird was now tethered behind a log, so that only his head and red wattles could appear. Here, too, the turkey was given freedom of motion, and granted self-determination as to how he should turn his head in wonder at the assemblage of the men before him. Or, if he should elect, he could disappear entirely behind the log if he found something that interested him upon the ground nearby, and the marksman must wait for the untimed appearance of the bobbing head. It took prompt action and a quick bead to score a hit. And it was years afterward that Alvin York had become the most expert rifle shot that those mountains had ever held, that he sat in the brush on the slope of a hill in the forest of Argonne, and watched for German helmets and German heads to bob above their pits and around trees, just forty yards away. The event in which centered the interest of all gathered at those Sunday matches was the shooting for the beef. Each man prepared his own target, a small board which was charred above a fire built of twigs and leaves. On this black surface 
was tacked a piece of white paper, about two by three inches in size, and in the center of the bottom margin of the white paper was cut a notch, an inverted V, not over a half inch in height. This permitted the marksman to raise the silver foresight of his rifle over a black, charred surface until the hairline of the sight fit into the tip of the triangle cut into the white paper. It was a pinpoint target that left to the ability of the marksman the exactness of his bead. The tip of the triangle in the paper was not the bull's-eye. It was simply the most delicate point that could be devised upon which to draw a bead. The bull's-eye was a point at which two knife-blade marks crossed. When the target was in position, this deliberately marked bull's-eye could not be seen by the shooter. With practice shots, they established how the gun was carrying and the direction in which the nerves of the marksman's eye were at the time deflecting the ball. Finally, the marksman drew his bead on the tip of the triangle, and where the shot punctured the white paper, the bull's eye would be located. This was done by moving the white paper until the knife blade cross showed just through the center of the hole the bullet had made in it. The paper in this position was retacked upon the board, and underneath was slipped a second piece of paper, making the paper target appear as if no hole had been torn through it. The bull's eye so located was usually within half an inch radius of the triangle tip. So exact was the marksmanship of these men that they recognized that neither gun nor man shot the same day after day. They knew a man's physical condition changed as these contests progressed, and that the gun varied in its register when it was hot and when cool. The range for the beef shot was forty yards if he shot from a chunk, twenty-seven yards, or about two-thirds the distance if the shot was off-hand. A chunk was any rest for the rifle. A bowed limb cut from a tree, the fork of a limb driven firmly into the ground, a part of a log, anything that was the height to give the needed low level to the rifle barrel when the shooter lay sprawled behind the gun. The permission to shoot from the rest was a concession to poor marksmanship. Shooting offhand required nerve, and steadiness of nerve, to put it there and hold it. The science of marksmanship they learned through experience. The rifle ball, forced down through the muzzle, was firmly packed, and the cap, carefully primed, to prevent a long fire. In taking aim in the offhand shots, the gun barrel was brought upward, so the target was always in full view, and as the bead was drawn, the body was tilted backward until an easy balance for the long barrel was found. The elbow of the arm against which the butt of the rifle rested was lifted high, awkwardly high, but this position prevented any nervous backward jerk or muscular movement of the arm that might sway the barrel. Only the weight of the forefinger was needed to spring the hair trigger. When the gun sights were nearing the tip of the black triangle, the marksman ceased breathing until the shot was fired. So accurate were they that when the bullet tore out the point where the two knife-blade marks crossed, it was simply considered a good shot. It was called cutting center. But to decide the winning shot from among those who cut center, it was necessary to ascertain how much of the ball lay across the center. Each contestant who claimed a chance to win brought his board to the judges for award. For each one of them a bullet was cut in half, and the half with the flat side up was forced into the bullet hole in the target until level with the board surface. With a compass the exact center of the face of the half bullet was marked, a dent as if made by a pinpoint. Then across the surface of the bright, newly cut lead, the knife blade marks of the original bull's eye, partly torn out by the shot, were retraced. The distance between the pin-dent center and the point where the knife marks crossed could then be exactly measured. When the cross passed directly over the dented center, the shot was perfect, 
and the mountaineers called it laying the seam of the ball on center in the beef shots it was a dollar a shot each man could purchase any number of shots when the pot contained the number of dollars asked for the beef the contest began the prize was divided into five parts the two best shots got each a hind quarter of the beef the third and fourth the four quarters the fifth of the winners the hide and tallow the beef was slain at the scene of the shoot each winner carrying home his part william york has been known to carry the prize home on hoof having made the five best shots but this was unusual for all the mountaineers grew up with a rifle in their hands and they knew how to use it at the shooting matches it was again judge york he always handled the compass in making the awards to the shooting matches still held at pall mall sam york alvin's brother brings the compass and the rifle which his father had used the contest for the sheep was under the same conditions that surrounded the beef matches only the entrance fee was smaller usually it was six shots for a dollar this odd division of the dollar made to fit their term a shilling a shot shows the people of the valley clinging to their english customs and still influenced by the colonial period in america in colonial days in many parts of the country the shilling's value was placed at sixteen and two-thirds cents contests for the pony purses were consolation shoots for those who had made no winning and to gratify that element who for the love of the sport would keep the matches going until in the day's dimming light the sights of the gun could not be used one day at one of these shooting matches at pall mall i witnessed a demonstration of the imperturbability of these mountain men one of the contestants had cut center and about a third of the ball lay across it when ike hatfield a cousin of alvin's took his place at the line he was young over six feet in height slender and erect as a reed and only his head drooped as his rifle came into position someone said to the man whose shot so far was the winning one get his nerve else he'll beat you there are no restrictive rules on the comments or actions of the contestants or spectators there is usually a steady flow of raillery towards the one at the shooting post to get hatfield's nerve the man ran forward waving his hat offering his services to get a fly off hatfield's gun the rifle barrel continued slowly to rise there was no recognition of the incident no movement seen in the tall figure then his opponent talked and sang and as this produced no noticeable effect he danced and stooping began to cut the pigeon wing directly under the rifle barrel at this a soundless chuckle swept over hatfield's shoulders with a face motionless he drew back his gun and turning quietly spat out a quid of tobacco as if it were all that interfered with his aim he again slowly raised his rifle and fired despite continued efforts to disconcert him he walked leisurely back to the crowd rested his gun against a tree and took his seat on the ground his only comment was i think i pestered him the judges found that hatfield had laid the seam of the ball on center and won in these contests a mountain marksman will shoot eight or ten times and often so closely will each shot fall to the knife-blade cross that the hole cut by all of them in the white paper target would be no larger than a man's thumbnail. One of the favorite methods of warming up used by John Souders, the closest competitor that Alvin York had in hundreds of matches, was to drive fifteen carpet tacks halfway into a board, then step off until the heads of the tacks could just be seen and with his rifle Souders would finish driving twelve or thirteen out of the fifteen it was not astuteness on the part of the german major as he lay flat upon the ground in that argonne forest under the swaying radius of alvin york's rifle 
that caused the major to propose when he found his men were given no time to get a clear shot at the american sergeant that if alvin york would stop killing them he would make the germans surrender in the shooting matches back in the mountains of tennessee that american soldier had been trained to the minute for the mission then before him but there were more powerful influences than his marksmanship that gave to sergeant york the steadiness of nerve the coolness of brain and the courage to fight to victory against such overwhelming odds back in the mountains in the days of william york there were other forms of amusement than the shooting matches the log rollings the house raisings which always ended in a feast or barbecue continued popular with the people and they had corn huskings to which all the neighbors came the corn husking was a winter sport these at times were held at night under the light of hand-held lanterns the mountaineers used to guide themselves with over the rough roads and along mountain paths but day or night the husking ended with a feast the ears to be husked were piled in a cone on the corn crib floor and usually at the bottom and in the very center of the cone a jug of whiskey plugged with a corn-cob stopper was hidden with songs and jokes they made sport of the work each trying to be the first to reach the jug once the jug was secured the husking ceased and it was a fair contest between the corn's owner and his guests to see how much or how little could be done before the jug-shaped goal was reached seated on the floor around the pile each of the huskers sought to make a narrow cut into the corn before him and reach the prize more quickly it was the farmer's part to have the corn piled in such a toppling cone that the ears above would roll down as fast as the inroads could be made and often the sliding ears entirely buried a husker he must then draw back to the edge of the pile and start again the shout of victory that went up when the prize was pulled forth warned the women folk at the house that they must make ready for the coming of hungry men with appetites well whetted on a product of corn the next day the farmer host without help shucked the ears that were left upon his corn crib floor alvin with the mountainsides as his playground grew sturdy and resolute he had been put to work by his father when first old enough to hold a hoe to help about the house pack water and bring in wood the sparks that bounced from the anvil in the shadow of the cave fascinated him and he hung around the blacksmith's shop and learned how to blow the bellows for his father and keep the fire hot he soon grew large enough to swing the sledge and he turned the shoes and made them ready all of this wrapped hard muscles over a body that was unusually large for his age his companions began to call him the biggin and the by name still clings to him this together with a calmness and an unmatched reserve gave him the prestige of a leader among his boy associates at the age of fifteen he swung the sledge with either hand and was a man's match in wrestling bouts one of his neighbors gave this view of him alvin was a quiet straight-going boy when he started to shoe a mule he always did it no matter how troublesome the mule he was so quiet about what he was doing that we never noticed much of that side of his character before he went away but now we see it in a season of prosperity william york moved from the cave and built a blacksmith's shop beside the road where it forks where one of the forks turns down the middle of the spring branch bed on its way to the mill and to birdstown and he and mary remodeled their home making a two-room cabin of it eleven children were born to them eight boys and three girls most of the winters of the thirty years of married life pressed privations upon them much of the seventy-five acres was poor soil and the earnings from the shop were small charge of william york for blacksmith's work was always made in full realization 
that it was something done for a friend and neighbor. Seldom was a job done for cash. Instead, at some time that was convenient to the customer, he would call and ask the amount he owed, and usually from William York's book of memory the account was made out, and not in thirty years was it disputed or held to be exorbitant. There have been winters of privation in the valley for all those dependent upon small acreage and uncertain crops, but there was no real want or suffering from the lack of the necessaries of life. Then, as it is today, the community spirit in the valley of the three forks of the wolf stood guard at the mountain passes, and no real poverty could enter. The farmer's bins were open to any neighbor in need. The storekeeper willingly waited until some livestock were sold, or even until the next crop came in. For the wants of his family there was credit for the man who lived in the valley and worked. He could not speculate on the wealth of his neighbor, but there was never the need of real need. Old Coonrod Pyle's theory of the distinctive difference in the location of the trouser patches is still regarded as a sound basis for business transactions. Those who have tried to live there upon as little work as they could do have sooner or later followed the path of the setting sun, and from the valley that indents the western slope of the great mountain range, that path leads downward. A visitor from the city once asked Mrs. York if she did her own work. Sure enough, the little lady said, and part of other people's. We had to. To raise so many children and keep them right is a great big job. A number of years went by in the period of Alvin's boyhood, when no school was held that he could attend. The school term was only for three months, beginning in early July. It was found impractical to hold sessions in the winter, for many of the children lived long distances away, and the branches from the mountain springs that crossed the roadways and fed the river wolf would go on rampages that could hold the pupils water-bound overnight. The schools in the mountains received no aid from the state, and in the remote districts it was difficult to secure teachers, except in the pleasant summer months. The school term could not begin earlier than July, for it must wait until crops were laid by, for the students ranged in ages from six to twenty years, and the larger boys were needed on the farms. Then it was the time for the potatoes to be gathered, and tomatoes hung red upon the vine and were ready for polling. The fall period of the farm was on. The progress which Sergeant York was able to make in all the years of his school life would be about equal to the completion of the third grade of a public school. He was not sufficiently advanced to become interested in reading and self-instruction before he was called to the army. He had been but a few miles away from the valley, where the men, as do other men of the mountains, live in the open of the farm and forest and think in terms of their environments. The need of an education had not come home to him. It was thus equipped that Sergeant York came into the presence of the generals of the Allied armies and sat at banquet boards with the leading men of this country in politics and business. But never in the experiences that have been crowded into the past two years of his life has he met a situation he could not command, or one that broke his calmness and reserve. Clearly and quickly he thinks, but those thoughts flow slowly into words. He is keenly appreciative of his own limitations, and quietly observes everything around him. From early childhood he has been taught to be swift and keen in observation. The rustling of a leaf might be related to a squirrel's presence, and behind each moving shadow there is a cause and a meaning. When he came to Protois, France, the soldiers sought to honor him by having him carry the division flag in the horse show. All was new to him, and he was told but little of the routine expected of him. He had become the man whom all the American soldiers wished to see, and his presence was the feature of the occasion. 
the officers of his own regiment watched him closely and not a mistake did he make in all the day's maneuvers a comment of one of the officers was he seems always instinctively to know the right thing to do he came from a cabin in the backwoods of tennessee but he was raised under influences that make real men a boy's ideal in his early life is the father who guides him and sergeant york had before him a character that was picturesque in its rugged manhood and honesty and inspiring in its devotion to right and justice the very privations he endured and that he saw influencing his home throughout his childhood were due to principle for william york would owe no man beyond the period of his promise to pay in the light of the sparks from the anvil in the shop in the cave sparks that burned brighter even than the light of day a comradeship between father and son was formed and they were companions until the boy reached manhood when the death of the father separated them there was nothing pretentious about the home in which he was raised it was but a cabin yet the chairs the tables were of seasoned oak handmade solid the puncheon floor was worn smooth with use and over it was a polished glow from the care of cleanliness showing purity was there the walls were papered with newspapers that was to keep out the winter's wind but over the windows were curtains of white muslin and a scarf of it ran the length of the simple board mantel-shelf and in season the blossom of some flower swayed there within the home no angry words were heard but often there was laughter and song and when the formulas for conduct were not followed even the words of correction were affectionately spoken as the boy's first steps were guided by tender hands so the proper way to walk through life was pointed out with gentle words and simple truths the mother's teachings were the products of an untrained mind but her philosophies came from a brain that has the power to think clearly and quickly and is never influenced by either anger or excitement qualities transmitted eminently to her son this little mother in the mountains unread and untutored with only the dictates of her own heart to guide her had early adopted as her guiding philosophy the belief that the greatest thing in life is love so the impressionable observant boy realized that life in the rugged mountains around him called for strength and endurance but in his home or wherever his mother was concerned there must be gentleness and love and she had been the greatest influence in his life he has always listened to her counsels except in a brief period of wildness in young manhood as his standard of life was formed under her teachings it may be again said of him but this time from the moral standpoint he seems always instinctively to know the right thing to do it was the love for his mother his love for his home life in pall mall and the sweetheart who was waiting for him there that called him back to the valley of the three forks of the wolf after he had gone out into the world and won fame among men the very sunlight falls gently on the verdant beauty of that valley and the seven mountains rise around it as though they would shield it from the contending currents of the world over the valley there comes a long gray dawn for the sun is high in the heavens when its slanting rays first fall on the silver waters of the wolf and through this dawn the men are moving feeding stock harnessing their teams and many of them sing as they ride to their work in the fields for they are content the tinkling of the bells on the cows grow fainter as the cows browse along the paths that lead to their mountain pastures up and down the road in companionable groups the pigs are moving audibly condoling with each other over the lack of business methods that caused the loss of the location of the entrance to the field of corn a crow flaps lazily across the valley and over the crest of the mountain the sun comes up and the summer twilight there is long and as it dips into night a drowsiness rises fog-like over the valley 
when a half-moon hangs between the mountains its light is that of drooping drowsy lids the lamps in the cabins on the mountain sides gleam but a brief time and go out the descending of the shade of night is the universal bedtime of the mountain people an occasional swinging light may still be seen but it is the mountaineer giving attention to some trouble among his stock then there is silence over the valley except for the chorus of katydids and the whistle of the gray owl to his mate in the woods now and then there comes the soft faint clank of a cowbell different from its sound as the cows run the road or feed in the pasture it is a slow and sleepy tang that soothes the ear but the mountain curfew is the bark of a dog somewhere up on the range a hound will call to another that all is well with him in his watch of the night and the family he guards are all abed the aroused neighbor calls to the dog at the cabin next to him and the message that all's well sweeps on the voices of the hounds on down the valley until it ends in an echo in the crags end of chapter recording by brett downey